I'd like to talk about the hindrances, but I'd like to begin by reading a quote from Ajahn Sumedho, one of the senior Western Buddhist monks in our lineage, early Buddhism. And I think I mentioned maybe the first night when I was talking about the refuges, how much uh, it meant to me that in our tradition, our sort of devotional object is the way it is. <laughs> it's hard to depict. We can, you know, we depict the Buddha representing the qualities of being awake to the way it is, but we don't really have a picture of Dhamma or Dharma the way it is. So, but it's still really a, a devotional object. And I've been on retreats where the monks chant a traditional chant in praise of Dhamma. <clears throat> and Ajahn Sumedho is talking about this chant and this quote. Meditation is a way of opening to Dhamma. You're opening to the truth. So when we chant about Dhamma, we say that it is apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading to liberation, to be experienced for oneself and realizable by the wise. These are words that point to the here and now. When we're opening to truth, we're not looking for anything in particular, like focusing on one object and saying, is this the truth? Opening to truth is opening the mind rather than focusing on one thing. So when we take refuge in Buddha and Dhamma, that reminds us to be in the state of alert attention. We're not trying to concentrate on this and get rid of that. We're not getting caught in the habits of indulgence and suppression. When we do open, when we learn how to open ourselves here and now, then we begin to experience peacefulness because we're not looking for any particular thing to attach to. We're not running about anymore we're stopping the frantic running. So opening to Dhamma is the way to peacefulness, which we have to realize for ourselves. We have to realize the truth for ourselves. It's not a matter of waiting around for somebody else to realize the truth for us or tell us what it is. And that's a little unfortunate. <laughs> we still have that childlike in, in some ways appropriate, you know, wish to be saved just by association. And uh, it can be inspiring to hear words like that. And it reminds me, um, one of Ajahn Sumedho's, initially a student, but a longtime colleague, senior monk, Ajahn Amaro, who I had the opportunity to spend some time with in the, in the late 90s when he was more around California. And uh, he once gave a very simple meditation instruction at the beginning of a sit, I think, <clears throat> where he said, allow the body to find its natural ease. Allow the mind to find its natural ease. And then stay alert to whatever arises to disturb that ease. And so really that's, that's what the talk is tonight. It's one of these many 
I think in the spiritual life, we find a lot of these chicken and egg conundrums. It's like it's hard to notice what arises to disturb the natural ease without natural ease. (laughs) It's like when you get, you know, when we have some momentum, when we have some stability of awareness, we feel some of that space, some of that ease, some of that settledness. And then it's relatively easy to notice the disturbances that roll on in from whatever direction. But when we're already agitated or feeling oppressed by experience, feeling numb, whatever it might be, it's not so easy to notice the next experience arising in the mind's reaction to that experience that keeps the drama, the distraction, and the difficulty in motion, what we call samsara. I think it's useful to think of our practice and our sort of basic attitude as being a a kind of naturalist. In fact, I looked up the word ecology just before I came over, you know, just taking responsibility for the ecology of our mind. And I think the definition was something like understanding the relationship between a living being or a living thing and the wider environment. So in the context of our practice, we're learning about the relationship, the interrelationship between qualities of the heart, qualities of the mind, and what they set in motion, how they interact with everything else and what that sets in motion, what kinds of seeds are being planted In our early Buddhist tradition, this is really the beginning of wisdom where we, you know, after stumbling around and being distracted and indulging in the pleasantness that comes our way, the moments where life is the way we like it, and then just unconsciously mostly hoping it doesn't change, and of course it does change, and and then once again struggling. But when we have some deepening, this connection with the way it is, initial wisdom is really understanding that the tumble of our lives, the tumble of our experience, that it has a lawfulness to it. And that there's something here to wake up to, something that is deeply useful, pragmatic, not distant, not subtle even. And in Buddhism, we often talk about that as waking up to what's skillful and unskillful. And in Joseph's talk a couple of nights ago, <clears throat> talking about craving, you know, that's one of the ways the Buddha talks about this sort of defining the sort of essence of what's unskillful, the mind one way or another entangled with craving. The craving mind is the problem. So a lot of what we're waking up to on retreat, just returning to the body, returning to the present moment, 
recognizing what's predominant, cultivating this continuity of present moment awareness, we're beginning to discern the lawfulness, you know, that it matters that what the mind is doing or how the mind is relating, the attitude of the mind, quality of the mind, it matters. And it matters because, isn't this true? We're beginning, all of us, we're beginning to discern what qualities of mind are planting seeds that are stressful, that set in motion stress. And not just set in motion stress, but set in motion stress and the tendency to plant more of those stressful seeds. And some, hopefully, we're noticing some of those tendencies of the heart and mind are skillful. Where the seeds that are getting planted are seeds of release, wholesome seeds, seeds that feel healing even as we're planting them and set in motion, more healing, more release, more freedom. And it really matters. This is sort of, initially this is maybe not what we want. You know, we were, the teachers were joking about, you know, how sometimes the attitude, all of us, I don't put myself out of this, we come to our daily sit or come to retreat because we want a break. We want sort of the Buddhist equivalent of a spa, you know, (laughs) where something is going to take care of our problems and we're going to get a break. We're going to have a nice sit or whatever it is, and we'll feel better at the end. And, and sometimes actually that actually happens. We have a nice sit or whatever it is, and we feel refreshed. But not always. And often what we're waking up to, what we're seeing, is this uh, deepening insight that it matters, that I have this ecology of the heart, of the mind, and as much as I might from a childlike point of view, wish it weren't true that, that it matters. The sort of maturing adult, you know, spiritual seeker in here understands it does matter. <clears throat> it really does matter. And there's no way around it. It's sort of a spiritual sobering up that we have to take responsibility for the qualities in the mind. As one of our teachers says, Saito Utejini, I Something like uh, our mind, qualities of the mind. It's not necessarily or not personal, actually, at all. But it is our responsibility to sort of be that skillful gardener, take responsibility for the ecology of the mind. Saida says, wisdom inclines toward the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. And it brings to mind this, uh, one of my favorite discourses from the time of the Buddha, in part because it involves a lay person like ourselves. And it's nice to have a discourse where the person with wisdom isn't in robes, right? It kind of inspires us that uh, even in the complexity of our lay lives, we can have real wisdom. So this person is called Chitta, was called Chitta, and he liked to visit the monks after their 
mid-morning meal, they go out early in the morning, collect their food, eat, and then they often would have Dharma discussions after their meal, and then he would go and listen in. And one day he overheard a group of monks having this argument, and they were trying to get to the root, right, because this question from Ajahn Amaro's instructions, what is it that arises to disturb the ease of the body and the mind? And the argument was something like, uh, with some of the monks saying, well, we have these, uh, these sensitivities. We're sensitive to sight and sound and smell and taste and touch. And we're also sensitive to mental activity. And if we weren't sensitive, the mind wouldn't be afflicted. And then other of the monks there said, no, no, no. It's not that we're sensitive. It's that the wrong kind of sense objects, sense experiences are showing up. And if only there were different sense experiences, then life wouldn't be a problem. So they were sort of going around, is it the sensitivity that's the problem or the objects that the mind or the heart is sensitive to, that's the problem. And uh, I am imagining that Chitta was respected because they turned to Chitta and asked, for his opinion. And he said, Venerable Sirs, it is just as if a black ox and a white ox were joined with a single collar or yoke. If someone were to say, the black ox is the fetter of the white ox, or the white ox is the fetter of the black, speaking this way, would they be speaking rightly? And some of the elder monks said, no, householder, the black ox is neither is not the fetter of the white, nor is the white ox the fetter of the black. The single collar or the yoke which they are joined, that is the fetter there. Right, so the point Chitta is gonna make is that yeah, so it's not the sensitivity that's the problem, and it's not the objects of experience precisely that's the problem, but it's what arises in conjunction And this really helps us understand the um, roots of unskillfulness in the mind. It's something that arises, some tendency, disposition, quality of mind that arises. Now we've all probably have heard, you know, the basic instruction, you know, just that in any moment, whether we're in daily activities or doing our walking practice or doing our sitting practice, it really comes down to something's being known. This experience is being known. So we think of those two things. There's an object that's being known. It doesn't get much simpler than that. And that's what we're trying to remember, right? That when we say, remember the present moment, remember to recognize the present moment, that's what we mean. Recognize that something in this moment is being known. But in that process of something being known, something unseen usually, until we get, until the mind gets trained, something arises in conjunction with the something being known. It's like that image people use sometimes of the mind as a mirror that simply reflects what happens in front of the mirror. But what happens if the mirror has a habit of being colored this way or that way, colored by aversion? colored by wanting, identified with the 
sense of sleepiness, identified with the sense of restlessness, colored by doubt. Well, then there would be a problem in the, this being known, right? It would be colored by that distortion, whatever it would be. And that's what we're discerning. That's what Chitta pointed out, right? That the problem, the cause of dukkha, is what arises in conjunction with the sensitivity of the knowing mind, the knowing heart, sensitive heart, and the complexity of our sense experience. You know, knowing the world through the five physical senses and the activity of the mind, the objects of the mind, thoughts, for example, emotions, mental images. What is it that arises? And we're learning to recognize these influences for what they are, those qualities that hinder the settledness, the clarity, and the freedom of the heart. And if those qualities go unseen, then they have a filled day, basically, right? The mind then, the yeah, the mind doing what it's always done, getting the same results, right? And so these repeated patterns, like if my tendency to be irritable or my tendency to be controlling or my tendency to be longing for something to make the moment better, more comfort in the body, a different temperature in the room, <clears throat> being closer to the end of the retreat, you know, whatever the heart might be longing for, what's happening in the news, nothing that you haven't seen before. <laughs> so we, we start to notice those colorings that are always there. Coloring the mind and then affecting the ecology of what it is, you know, our experience as a human being basically oppressing ourselves. So we're talking about how the mind is knowing, how the mind is relating. And this, these qualities that affect how the mind knows, how the mind relates, it's not the same as pleasantness and unpleasantness. Because this can be confusing when there's a lot of painful sensation, for example, but it could be the same, you know, a lot of pleasant sensation. It doesn't mean that there's something unskillful just because there's pain. It doesn't mean there's some quali quality hindering the mind. Right? Because there can be painful sensation and freedom. Shocking. <laughs> Because we're so, this is part of the problem, like this is one of the ways that we learn to catch aversion is when there's painful experience. Could be a painful thought or memory, could be just ordinary pain in the knee or whatever it might be. But we're pretty sure that there's a problem here. But that's that quality that rises in conjunction with the object, unpleasantness, and the sensitive heart, unpleasantness is being known, and something arises 
that ties that together and deludes the mind because the mind doesn't know better. And the, the interesting thing is how powerful it is to simply notice that yoke, that arising um, quality, one of the hindrances. And I, well, I was reflecting on this talk and I remembered a time, this is a long time ago, but I was on a long retreat at IMS in Massachusetts, Massachusetts and uh, I was doing walking practice, I think early in the morning and uh, I had some continuity of awareness. And uh, one of my, one of the chronic tendencies of my mind was doubt. Am I doing it right? Am I making progress? Something like that. But because of the continuity of awareness, like I mentioned earlier, when the doubt arose, then it was seen in a fresh way. You know, the mind was already present with the walking and other simple qualities of seeing and hearing probably, some continuity of present moment awareness. And then when doubt arose, it was a very familiar pattern like putting on an old coat you've worn many, many times. But what's different is seeing it arise seemingly out of nowhere, you know, just because the tendency's there and then seeing the coloring of the doubt, seeing in a sense the weight of the mind putting that quality on. The whole world then shaded or colored by doubt and the heaviness, the stiffness of a mind that is identified with doubt. And it was so revealing to see how impersonal that was, how it just arose suddenly there in the moment there it was, and how seeing it clearly really changed the mind's relationship to doubt going forward. It's like the mind can't forget when it sees one of these qualities very uh, clearly, it's really hard for the mind, the wisdom in the mind to forget what it learned, which is, I mean, just in simple words, that that tendency towards doubt, it's not self, it's just the habit. It's just that tendency of the mind. And the relevant part of that habit is it's not helpful. It doesn't contribute to anybody's well-being, mine or another. And it's, you know, we always wonder like, oh yeah, I gotta let go of doubt. I have to stop doubting. But it doesn't really work that way. What works is just to keep recognizing the truth that it's unhelpful, it's unskillful. And the Buddha in many different places in his talks remind, reminded us that's how we practice. There's one discourse, well, that's really how the Buddha practiced, where he kept bringing to mind. Sometimes it's translated as two sorts of thinking. And the, the Buddha said, practitioners before my awakening, when I was still just an unawakened bodhisattva, someone on the way to awakening. The thought occurred to me, why don't I keep dividing my thinking into two sorts? So I made my thinking imbued with sensuality, sense desire, thinking imbued with ill will or aversion, 
thinking imbued with harmfulness, one sort, and thinking imbued with renunciation, with non-ill will, kindness, and non-harmfulness, which we could call compassion, the other category. So skillful and unskillful. And this is the part I really like. And as I remain thus heedful, ardent, resolute, right? So here's the Buddha, or someone on the way to being the Buddha, right? But a pretty skilled practitioner, I'm assuming. And he's not only, you know, has probably some pretty uh, good qualities of mind, but he's practicing in a heedful, ardent, and resolute way, as he's reporting. And still, thinking imbued with sense desire arose in the Buddha, thinking imbued with ill will, thinking imbued with harmfulness arose because it's not personal. So when those unskillful qualities of mind arise, the, hind- uh, the hindrances, the tendency is to feel like somehow we're personally failing. But those qualities, like when irritation arises or greed arises or restlessness or sleepiness or doubt arises, those qualities are arising because of past causes. The question in this moment is how is the mind going to relate? Be unaware, be aware but react with aversion, be aware but react with complacency, or be aware and clearly comprehend, oh, this is unskillful. Or if it's a skillful quality, this is skillful. And this is what the Buddha noticed when he did that. So he's just being present with some continuity, ardent, heedful, resolute, resolute about recognizing the quality that's there moment by moment as the mind is relating to whatever's being known. Mind, is the mind relating skillfully or unskillfully? Skillfully, unskillfully, moment by moment, just comprehending. Now remember, doesn't mean you need to use language as you're doing this. It's really about this resolve to notice what kind of seeds the mind is laying down and the ground of the mind and the sort of fertile soil of our heart, what sort of tendencies are getting reinforced, what sort of tendencies are being weakened or uprooted. So again, as I re- he says, as I remain thus heedful, ardent and resolute, thinking imbued with the three unwholesome qualities, but you could, you know, any list of the unwholesome qualities arose in me. I discerned that these unwholesome qualities had arisen in me and that it leads, they lead to my own affliction, the affliction of others, the affliction of both obstruct discernment, promote vexation, do not lead to unbinding. Right? So that, that's called clear comprehension. That means there's enough continuity that when we see what's happening in the mind, the wisdom in the mind really discerns what kind of seeds are being planted, what's getting set in motion. We understand, oh yeah, this isn't helping. Because something will lead to the letting go, to the not feeding, the not identifying. The mind really needs to see the unskillfulness many times. 
how unhelpful it is. And then he says, just as we'd hope, as I notice that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. As I notice that it leads to the affliction of others, the affliction of both, that it obstructs discernment, promotes fixation, does not lead to unbinding, it subsided. Whatever thinking imbued with these unskillful qualities, I simply abandoned them, dispelled them. And then um, in this discourse, in the sutta, the Buddha gives this simile of a cow herder, right? Uh, trying to keep, a, you can imagine, a group of cows <clears throat> and all the crops are very ripe. And so the cow paths are very thin because most of the land is devoted to cultivating the rice or whatever it was back then. And the cow herder would have to sort of get the cows from one pasture land to the next, but really careful to keep the cows out of the pasture because the people that own the pastures or the um, crops, of course, would not be so happy. So the image is that, that sort of when you have a lot of herd of cattle, or those of you who've raised a bunch of kids, you know, and you're in a dangerous, I, I remember once when I was my first year of teaching elementary school back in the 80s, and uh, I just was naive, and I took the class to a museum by myself. I didn't get that you need another adult. And just downtown Oakland, and like <laughs> a bunch of second and third graders, and sort of, it was like that, tapping them this way and that way because I didn't want anything bad to happen. And that's how it is when the mind isn't well trained, but there's enough wisdom to know that I could get myself in trouble. If I let the aversion spin out of control, if I let the greed that's there spin out of control, complaining about sleepiness, identified with the restlessness, spinning with the doubt, if I feed that, one of the things we notice on retreat, because we're really sensitive, is how much it hurts. Like when we notice what it's like after the mind has been spinning with one of these hindrances for 30 minutes, 10 minutes, and the whole energetic, physical, subtle body, everything can feel all tied up in a knot. And it can take a while just to sort of feel relatively at ease, just because the mind, in a sense, was unguarded. And it went down a path that it shouldn't have gone down. And there was no wisdom to say, honey, are you sure this is going to be helpful? That it's worth, you know, because there's always a short-term gratification when we're, you know, whatever it is, indulging in our rage or indulging in our greed or complaining about indulging, identifying with sleepiness or restlessness or doubt. And it always takes a lot of upfront energy to be vigilant. But it really is a learned behavior because we learn that when we don't do it, it's much harder, right? The easy way is the hard way, right? Being vigilant about the hindrances. And now here's the good news, right? Because as he continued the train, the Buddha noticed more and more that the wholesome qualities would arise. And he noticed those wholesome qualities didn't lead to vexation, didn't 
harm himself or others or both. And then the simile he uses then is the uh, cow herder now after the crops have been harvested, now the farmers want the cows to wander in the fields, right? Because the poop fertilizes the, uh, the crops for next year. So he can sit under the cow herder, they can sit under the shade of a nice tree and just know the cows are there, right? Because now as we notice the mind, notice the qualities that are arising in the practice of something being known, something being known, none of the hindrance, hindrances are seen. Oh, this is a skillful mind, right? And the mind, the sort of vigilant cow herder can simply rest back knowing that the mind is wholesome. And the Buddha gives us a lot of help in recognizing the unwholesome qualities that show up. So I just want to go through this because we all have our, you know, tendency to be more of a greedy type or in some situations more of a greedy type, some situations more aversion, sometimes more dull and heavy, sleepy, sometimes more hyped up, restless, full of worry, times to be full of doubt. And for each one, he, he describes greed, the wanting mind as a mind colored in dye, like you drop some coloring in a clear pool, which obstructs the clarity. Or another image he uses being in debt. Yeah, because when we're wanting, there's that promise, if only I have this, then I'll be happy. If only I had that kind of shawl, then my meditation would really settle down. <laughs> That's why Kamala mentioned not to go to the store. <laughs> this shawl, I'm sure. I checked it out before the retreat began and I didn't find the right one yet. Someday. And ill will, the water's boiling, right? So it's sort of that restless boiling when we're enraged, when we're irritated. And he describes it as being sick. Now remember, for each of these being sick, there are t moments when the hindrance of aversion is abandoned. It's like feeling better or from being in debt because of the greed, feeling contentment. Like, I don't, I could go down and have some peanut butter and crackers, but I don't need to. And that's like out of debt. Because when I thought, if only, or then, you know, I can be happy. But when I realize I don't need to, I can, but I don't need to, it's such a relief. I don't need the shawl. It'd be nice to have a shawl, but I don't need it. It's really nice, that's freedom. For sloth and torpor, the Buddha describes it as algae, a pond covered with algae, and the quality of being imprisoned. And we know that well, I'm assuming, especially the first few days of the retreat, when the mind can be dull and heavy, 
and it really feels like it's not good for much. And we can get identified that, because it's interesting to see that the awareness of dullness is not itself dull. But because there's such a strong tendency to identify with the dullness, we keep missing that the awareness isn't oppressed, isn't contaminated, stained by the sleepiness. It's always surprising, and you can, depending on the cause of your sleepiness, but you can try that experiment. Like to, when you see the sleepiness, the dullness, and the physical, energetic qualities that go with the dullness. When you really look at it without judgment, in a simple, direct way, just as a phenomena being known, right? It all of a sudden can go from being a heavy, wet blanket to not a problem at all. In fact, it can immediately evaporate the sense of being really sleepy or really dull. Because a lot of what holds it together is the identification, personalizing the dullness is what feeds it. And so he uses that image of being in prison. With restlessness, the pool, the clear pool of water is whipped up by the wind and we feel enslaved. We've got a master, right? And it doesn't even need to make sense. We were so busy carrying out what we think the master is telling us to do. We don't even bother to look. Is there some boss, some master? So there's this identification with the busyness, you know, whatever the story might be. And then the last hindrance, doubt, the pool is muddy, you know, it sort of can't see clearly. We're so busy trying to answer the questions the mind has generated and we feel endangered. Like I have to resolve this. I'm endangered. I have to resolve it. I'm not safe until I get clarity. But no matter how the mind conceives, right, it's never going to break the cycle because we can't think of something that uh, has any kind of permanence, satisfies the mind's need to know. We can pretend we know, but underneath the mind knows that it doesn't know or knows that it's still uncertain. And so it's always tenuous, it's always uneasy, which keeps the doubt in motion. There's a very powerful image in uh, early Buddhism. I remember just sort of being disturbed when I first read it. it. I think I was reading Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Middle Link Discourses, and uh, he had a footnote explaining this image that's used in uh, the Buddhist discourses about these parasitic vines that grow on trees. Maybe some of you know about them. Um, and so the Buddha 
um, has this discourse where he's describing practitioners, there are these three roots of what is unskillful. Which three? Greed is a root of what is unskillful. Aversion is a root of what is unskillful. Delusion is a root of what is unskillful. Whatever a greedy person fabricates fabricates by means of body, speech, or intellect, that too is unskillful. Whatever suffering a greedy person, their mind overcome with greed, their mind consumed, wrongly inflicts on another person through beating or imprisonment, confiscation, or placing blame or banishment with the thought, I have power, I want power, that too is unskillful. Thus it is that many un that many harmful, unskillful qualities, events, born of greed, caused by greed, originated through greed, conditioned by greed, come into play. And so you could substitute any other unwholesome qualities besides greed, the same thing. When the mind's contaminated, colored by one of those unseen qualities, then what we do is not for our own well-being or for the well-being of others. And we get a world like the world we have, where there's a lot of injustice and a lot of suffering. And then he uses this image, the Buddha uses this image. A person like this, their mind overcome with unskillful qualities, born of greed, born of aversion, born of delusion, their mind consumed, dwells in suffering right in the here and now feeling threatened, turbulent, feverish, and at the breakup of the body after death can expect a bad destination. (laughs) Yeah, kind of scares us. I'm assuming that's a nervous laugh. (laughs) And he goes on, just as a tree, when smothered and surrounded by these three parasitic vines, falls into misfortune, falls into disaster, falls into misfortune and disaster. In the same way, a person like this, their mind overcome with harmful, unskillful qualities, born of greed, aversion, and delusion, the mind consumed, dwells in suffering right in the here and now, threatened, turbulent, feverish, and at the breakup of the body after death can expect a bad destination. So these vines, you know, they they have nice fruits that the birds like, Birds eat the fruit, little berries or whatever, poop in the, you know, on a branch of one of those big, beautiful tropical trees. Enough humidity, enough maybe debris on the branch that the vine just starts growing right on the branch, even far up in the tree. And eventually the vine drops its roots down in the ground and over time completely encircles the big tree. And these trees, I don't know if you've seen them in the tropics, but they can, I think, cover like several city blocks where the vine has encircled all of the trees, right? And it becomes another kind of living creature built on a human being that wasn't paying attention (laughs) with enough continuity, right? And we see this in ourselves and more often we see it in others because it's hard to see. It's, it's a little bit uh, 
Like, do we really want to see how it works? We really do want to see how it works. But then there's sort of no going back, meaning no going back toward having that complacency, that wrong view that it doesn't matter what the mind is doing. Because it does, even like little activities of greed make it easier to have bigger activities, you know, more, the mind more entrenched with greed. Little activities of aversion make it easier for the mind to play with more intense, more identified activities of aversion, aversive activities of mind. And on and on with identifying with sleepiness and dullness, identifying, taking restlessness personally, identifying with the doubt. So if we have that image, if it works for you like it works for me, then we have this sort of this sort of birth of vigilance. And vigilance is a useful word. We often interpret it in terms of getting tight, but a visual means like keeping the light on. It's actually a very useful image for us mindful awareness practitioners, right? We want to keep the light on. I was so moved at the beginning of the retreat. I hadn't heard Joseph use that, like, let's make our daily activities number one, walking practice number two, sitting practice number three, because it really, for me, uh, points to this like, oh yeah, I have to be responsible. It's more stressful to pretend I don't have to be responsible for my mind than it is to take responsibility for my mind, what my mind is doing. It's not the same as taking it personally, right? It doesn't help to judge or to get upset at what the mind's doing. The only thing that matters, the only thing that helps is to learn how to be skillful, given that this is arising, right? And then the skillful way is to bring attention, mindful awareness to the qualities that are there in the mind. And fortunately, the Buddha tells us how to do that. So when there's sense desire, greed, wanting there in the mind, right? He uses this basic model of feeding and starving. So because we care, because of this compassion for our well-being and the well-being of others, right? We develop this vigilance. We keep the light on. What's the mind doing? What's being known? Is it skillful or unskillful? In the direction of stress, in the direction of release. And we may not know, but we just keep, you know, that's the point of continuity. With enough continuity, we will directly experience if the mind, the heart, and body is tumbling toward a more contracted, bound up state, or if the heart and mind is moving in the direction of a more full release, lightening up, more beautiful qualities, right? Continuity of awareness reveals this, starting over, starting over. And so we'll learn what the Buddha's Uh, said in this discourse about feeding and starving the hindrances. We'll learn through direct experience how the mind is feeding desire, attachment, greed, wanting. And it's basically what the Buddha says is when we're paying attention 
to the pleasantness that's related to the desiring, to the wanting. You know, if we're attracted to a person, attracted to lunch, wanting to go to bed, wanting to be at home, and then what objects, if we keep paying attention to what objects does the fire of greed start to blaze more and more? So if my desire, my wanting is to go home, if I keep imagining my home and what I'd do if I were at home, I'm throwing fuel into that fire of greed. And we see, oh, wisdom discerns, oh, that's how it keeps burning. That's how the heart continues to be tormented by greed. And in paying attention to what aspect of the present moment experience does the fire of greed begin to cool? Like for example, I could think about what it would be like being at home, but I could also notice the present moment and relate to, this is a nice room. Temperature feels pretty good. I feel pretty safe, right? So just connecting with aspects of the present moment that uh, evoke a sense of contentment. Or you could notice that whatever the mind is imagining, like being at home, you could imagine the downsides, like, yeah, but at home I've got my to-do list, you know, and I've got this and I got that, and, and isn't it, that's right, when I'm at home I don't wanna be there. <laughs> I wanna go somewhere else. So there's a way to sort of put water on the fire of greed and it, on the fires of greed. And it's just a matter of noticing what feeds and what starves it. And to get really skillful about that. Because it really, this is part of this insight about skillfulness and unskillfulness. It matters what we pay attention to. It's just not enough to be aware of what's happening in the present moment. There needs to be this developing comprehension of how it matters, how we're paying attention, what we're paying attention to, what is skillful to pay attention to right now. And so much of our human conditioning is, just tell me what I need to do so I can be done. But so much initially in practice is getting used to not being done. Like how to practice in a way where we can practice forever. So it's not something that, okay, I'm gonna work really hard and get to that good place and then I won't have to work hard. But how to naturalize working hard or being vigilant, how to kind of make it just what we do. And it, we often, you'll hear teachers talk about this as um, developing some momentum. Because that vigilance eventually begins to be seen as a natural process, not so much Mark trying to be vigilant, Mark connecting to the present moment, sustaining present moment awareness, but just noticing that that's happening. But initially it does feel, it does require a sense of, oh, this makes a lot of sense to me. I'm really gonna give myself 
to this present moment stuff. So for ill will, when we pay attention to what, does the ill will grow? So if we're angry at somebody, we have some painful memory about an interaction that happened back at home and we're just sort of chewing on it or somebody did something, breathing loud or moving or taking too much food or whatever it might be, and we're stewing about that, wondering if people taking the special needs to table food, whether they're really special needs and <laughs> why can't I have the special need, or maybe I can. And So when we keep looking at what, does the, the grip of ill will get stronger? When I pay attention to what, does, the, does ill will get fed? And when I open to the present moment, connect with the present moment in another way, does ill will weaken and eventually is abandoned? And of course, loving kindness, like just relating to the present moment with loving kindness, like that inclusive sense that everybody's doing the best they can. Oh, I know what it's like to act out. Or another way is like uh, some of you have heard that simile of the person rowing their boat. They've got a lantern, it's at night, and they ram in or another boat rams into them and they just start cursing like, you idiot, I had my light on, you should have seen me. He takes the lantern, he shines, and he sees that there's nobody in that boat. And the anger disappears because anger needs a target. It needs somebody who's bad or stupid or, right? It's hard to be angry when we realize people are just expressing their own causes and conditions, their own conditioning. Given everything in play, they can't really, I can't, you can't, we can't be other than how we are right now. So we can see, connect with the present moment through that lens and it, it helps to weaken the aversion. So you can learn just through trial and error, like what feeds aversion, what starves it. When we're sleepy and we obsessively look at the quality of being heavy, well, maybe that makes us more sleepy. You know, when we identify, take personally, the particular qualities of mind that we call sleepy, heavy, dull, well, then it's going to, appear bigger and more real, more like, I can't practice until this goes away. But there are other things we can pay attention to, right? Like finding, we often say sometimes when people ask questions about sleepiness, you know, it's this sort of paradoxical thing. What kind of effort is the mind willing to make? Make that effort. Make some kind of skillful effort because by making effort, energy arises. We think sometimes I need energy to make effort. I remember Joseph saying this many times when I was studying with Joseph, you know, that, that it's the effort that leads to energy. And so just, and just to be skillful, well, what, what effort is the mind willing to make? What like just connecting, really connecting 
oh, this is being known. Just making that effort to connect and then just being curious about sustaining. Instead of believing the thought, I can't really practice because I'm sleepy, just see if you can connect and sustain. And what is that? What's the effect on the sleepiness by making that effort? Or that's why we sometimes say stand up because it takes some effort to stand or do more walking practice or sit with the eyes open because it takes some effort. The eyes want to close. And restlessness is similar. You know, when we pay attention to the buzz, that feeds. What can we pay attention to that diminishes, weakens the restlessness? And doubt. So for all of the five hindrances, we're just observing feeding and starving. And the Buddha uses a very provocative image of 40 cartloads of timber and dried dung and branches and twigs. And if we're, someone were to keep putting them into a big bonfire, well, that fire is going to burn for a long, long time. And that's just that image of what the mind, how the mind is paying attention, what it's paying attention to. But if someone were to stop putting in 40 cartloads of flammable material, well, that fire would burn out. It's just a matter of time. It's the law, right? It's just like that's how it works. So when we are caught, when the mind is caught in some one of these difficult patterns, it's like, what? how can we starve it? And in Buddhism, we call this, you know, comprehension, we call this wise attention, the wisdom awareness that is comprehending how the fires of greed, anger, and delusion, the fires that hinder awareness, hinder insight, how they keep going and how they quiet down. And we have, this is the great thing about a nine-day retreat. We really have the time over and over again. Just think about today how many little fires you were either able or avoided observing with care. You know, that, you, that we did or could have learned something about how that fire got fed, how it got weakened. And the interesting thing is it's so empowering because we're placing the cause of suffering right here. We're not blaming spirit rock or blaming this or blaming that. We're realizing that the fire is being fed right here by how the mind is paying attention. So even though it can feel like, oh, I don't want that responsibility, it really lifts us out of helplessness because we can practice. There is this liberating practice. So I'll just end with this inspiring quote from the Buddha, just his transmission of confidence. I see it as where he said, abandon what is unskillful. One can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unskillful would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unskillful brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unskillful. Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, 
I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the good would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the good. So may we all become wise folks who know how to plant good seeds and stop planting the not so good seeds. So take a moment, just let go of the words. for listening everyone, inviting you all to come back at nine o'clock and notice what the mind is doing. So please join in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.